We are uh, back in Matthew chapter 8, starting at verse 28 uh, this morning, through the end of the chapter. Uh, This is another one of those events that appears in all three of the Synoptic Gospels. Uh, That's Matthew, Mark, and Luke. And you guys know why they're called Synoptic, right? Nod your head or shake your head. Okay, Matthew, Mark, and Luke are the Synoptic Gospels because they contain a synopsis of Jesus' life and ministry. John is not. John's, uh, John's Gospel focuses almost exclusively on just Jesus' ministry and almost exclusively on the last portion of his ministry, the last year of his ministry. So there's, there's a difference between Matthew, Mark, Luke, and then John. So this particular event happens in uh, all three of the synoptics, in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. In Mark and in Matthew here, it's in chapter 8. In Luke's account, it's in, I'm sorry, it's in chapter 8 in Luke's account. It's in chapter 5 of Mark's account. I've got too many numbers in one location here in my notes. Um, There's quite a bit of difference between the way Matthew tells this story and the way Mark and Luke record the story. Um, it is pretty widely accepted now, uh, historically, that Mark was the first one to write his gospel. That Mark was first. And then Matthew and Luke used Mark as a source for their gospels, as one source among many. Um, Luke, of course, took some of his gospel from uh, direct conversations with Mary Jesus' mother, who else would know some of the things about Jesus' life. Uh, He also took some from what he learned from the disciples during his journeys with Paul. Mark is pretty much about 98% positively identified as John Mark, the youngest of the uh, disciples during Jesus' ministry. And most of his gospel is taking taken from uh, Peter's account of what happened during Jesus' life and ministry. So there's some differences in the way they look at things. There's some differences in the way they approach the message and, and the importance of things in the gospel. Now, there are some people, some of them are unbelievers and some of them are Christians who have been deceived, who believe that these differences between the gospels are an indication of a conflict in Scripture, that there's contradictions between the stories, that there's differences between the stories. Uh, I disagree with them because each one of the gospel writers brought a different perspective to the story that they were telling. They had different priorities in life. They had different backgrounds. You know, we know that Luke was a Gentile physician, He was a doctor. So there were things that went on in Luke's mind that didn't happen in the mind of Matthew, who is a Jewish tax collector. Right? So these differences impact the way they tell the story, the way they value certain stories, the way they even organize the telling of what happened during Jesus' life and ministry. So a little bit of a, a preface here. Matthew 
as a Jewish tax collector, his gospel is written from a very, very Jewish perspective. Extremely Jewish perspective. The only one that is more oriented towards the things of Israel is John. Um, John is the most Hebrew book in the New Testament. Um, Matthew includes a lot of details that would have a particular significance to a first century Jewish audience. There are things that Matthew talks about that just make sense to a Jew. Where Matthew referred back at the beginning of the book in the, in the story or the telling of Jesus' birth, where Matthew referred back to the book of Isaiah when he said, Behold, the virgin will be with child, right? To the Jews, that would have clicked. To a Gentile, meh, right? So there's a difference in perspective there. Matthew's emphasis is on Jesus' identity as the Jewish Messiah. Mark speaks very heavily about Jesus and his humanity as a true Israelite and his identity as the Son of God. It's not that Messiah and Son of God are different, but there are different perspectives on who Jesus is. Remember, Mark got a lot of his material from Peter. If you remember Peter's confession of faith at Caesarea Philippi, when Jesus came to the disciples and he said, who do the people say that I am? And the disciples answered, you know, some say that you're Elijah, some say that you're the prophet, Isaiah, some say that you're John the Baptist, because obviously they don't know anything. And then Jesus says, who do you say that I am? And it was Peter who responded with, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. So Mark's gospel is told from that perspective. Mark is also very Roman in his descriptions. He he keeps things historically ambivalent to the Jewish stuff and writes to a more Roman perspective because Mark, being the youngest, had grown up under a completely Roman rule. And then if you look at Luke, he's a Gentile. Right? He was not one of the original disciples. He was a companion of Paul. But he didn't travel around with Jesus during those three years. So, he spends a lot of time on details that would serve to kind of cement, as, as Luke says it in the beginning of the book of Luke, in the beginning of the book of Acts, he says he wants to help Uh, provide the certainty of what you believe. So there's a lot of details that we find in Luke that we don't find anywhere else. You know, at the beginning of Luke, when he talks about in the the year such and such, during the reign of this particular emperor, when so-and-so was the governor of this province, you know, when, when historians started looking back at those details, they said, well, Luke's making stuff up because that never happened. There was no such thing as a tetrarch at that point in time. And then all of a sudden, they did a little bit more digging, and every time an archaeologist turns his shovel over in Palestine, he finds something to substantiate the Bible. They, they uncovered a stone that said, oh, by the way, here's so-and-so who was the tetrarch of, oh, well, look, we were wrong again. So Luke wants to give people the evidence that they need, which makes sense as a doctor. What do doctors look at? They look at symptomatic evidence 
to determine how to treat their patient. So all of this stuff tells us why the stories are different, why the same event is described differently between three different writers. It also helps to eliminate the idea that the Holy Spirit inspired the text by dictation. Okay? Now we all know that Paul told Timothy in his letter that all Scripture is what? Inspired by God, right? Literally, the words mean God-breathed. Okay? The, and this is where language has changed. The word that is used in the Greek is actually not the word inspiration, because inspiration talks about something coming in. It's rather the word expiration, something being spoken out. So all Scripture is spoken out by God. But that is not to say that God sat on Mark's shoulder and told him what words to put to paper. That's not what happened. God inspired him to write down the account of what happened using his personality and his vocabulary and his history. So that's why there's differences between the three books. So with all that being said, let's take a look at our text from Matthew's Gospel, which is actually the shortest telling of this account. So let's all stand. Matthew chapter 8, starting in verse 28. And when he came to the other side, to the country of the Gadarenes, two demon-possessed men met him, coming out of the tombs, so fierce that no one could pass that way. And behold, they cried out, What have you to do with us, O Son of God? Have you come here to torment us before the time? Now a herd of many pigs was feeding some distance from them, and the demons begged him, saying, If you cast us out, send us away into the herd of pigs. And he said to them, Go. So they came out and went into the pigs, and behold, the whole herd rushed down the steep bank into the sea and drowned in the waters. The herdsmen fled, and going into the city, they told everything, especially what had happened to the demon-possessed men. And behold, all the city came out to meet Jesus, and when they saw him, they begged him to leave their region. Let's pray. Father, in this simple, simple story, we have a description of how the fallen creature reacts in the presence of your holiness. Help us to understand, help us to apply the lesson in this particular passage. Help us to apply an understanding of how the world's going to respond when they're confronted with the truth of who Jesus is. We pray this in his name. Amen. Take a seat, please. Don't take it anywhere, just sit in it. Okay, so, do I have my map in the slideshow? No? Oh, you're killing me. Good help is so hard to find. You feed him, you clothe him, you put a roof over his head, he can't even get a slide on the screen. Anytime. Anybody got the tune to Jeopardy? Okay, so while he's working on that, what what this slide is here is a map. 
It's slide number 38. Did you write that down? It's number 38 in that slideshow. If you can just throw it up on the screen, that'll work too. Um, the, the area, the, the country of the Gadarenes, and if you look at Matthew and you look at Mark and you look at Luke, you will notice that the name of the people is changed in all three of those. And there are some manuscripts that don't use Gadarenes. If you have a study Bible with you, uh, it probably says something along the lines that uh, in some manuscripts it says that's the the Gergesenes, and in some manuscripts it says the Gerasenes. Um, apparently, this is a, a nickname for the three different areas. That's the wrong. Yeah, there it is. That's the one. So I don't have my laser pointer, but the area that we're talking about here. is down here in the bottom right-hand corner. Okay, he's got the laser pointer. So, notice where Capernaum is and where Gadara is. Remember in the last section that we looked at, Jesus commanded them to go across to the other side. Well, that's about the other side. So they travel across the Sea of Galilee. It's about a 17-mile trip from Capernaum, and that includes the the little strip of land there between the edge of the sea and Gadara. Now, it's possible that 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 city there actually expanded up closer to the edge of the sea, or it may have expanded over to the Jordan River. That's what that is there coming out of the Sea of Galilee headed south. Here is the first difference between what Matthew says and what Mark says. Matthew tells us that two demon-possessed men came out to meet them. Mark and Luke said that one demon-possessed man came out to meet them. Is that a conflict? No. If there was two, then there was definitely one. Right? 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 If there was two, then there was definitely one. It's possible that the reason this is recorded different, again, because of perspective and everything else, it might be because only one of the men was particularly fierce. It might be that just one of the men was the one who spoke. Because in Mark's account and Luke's account, we have them talking to Jesus a little bit more when he commands them to tell him his name. What is your name? We are legion because we are many, right? Matthew doesn't have anything about that. So it could be because this. Now, if you consider Matthew's particularly Jewish perspective, how many witnesses did it take to convict a person of a death penalty offense? Two or more. How many witnesses did it take to stand as witnesses to any event? Two or more. So it's possible that the reason that Matthew recorded the two of them was because that two witnesses served to substantiate Jesus' power over demonic possession. We don't know for certain. We just know that there was a difference between the two uh, or three accounts. Here's what we do know. This individual or these individuals, I'm going to flip back and forth between the two because we know there was at least one. They tried, the townsfolk tried everything possible to contain these men. 
they chained them up. They hid them in the tombs. They chained them up with the dead. They, they tried to keep them captive so that the town would not be cut off from the rest of the world. It says, Matthew says, that these men came out so fierce that no one could pass that way. No one could pass that way. Was Jesus headed to this town? No, probably not. Why not? It was a Gentile village. It was not a Jewish village. How do we know it was a Gentile village? They were raising pigs. (laughs) That's not happening in a Jewish town. At this point in his ministry, Jesus was not going to the Gentiles. So they were just passing through. Now, why would he have been passing through? Can you put the map back up there real quick? (laughs) So, here is Galilee, okay? Right? Back up! All right, here's Galilee. This region over here was specifically known as Perea. Okay? This region over here that we can't see on the map was Samaria. Where did the Jews travel to avoid going through Samaria? They went through Perea. They came over here. They had actually crossed over the Jordan River and come down through here to get to Jerusalem. They avoided the Samaritans at all costs. At this point in Jesus' ministry, he was not yet going to anybody but the Jews. He wasn't stopping in this town. He was making his way through to avoid Samaria, as a good Jewish rabbi would at that point in his ministry, at that point in his life. And yet we're told that these demon-possessed men were so fierce that no one could pass. Why did the townspeople lock them up and chain them up? Because that was impacting commerce. That was impacting everything in their city. we got to lock these people. That would be like having a leper colony posted on I-10 coming into the city of Biloxi or into Gulfport on 49. Nobody could pass. Nobody would want to. So the townspeople tried to keep them contained, but they failed because these unclean spirits, these demons, were able to put these men in such a frenzy that they could break the chains apart. The demons had great power. Now, if you look at the idea of spiritual warfare, I don't want you to, and and we've been talking about spiritual warfare for a few weeks during our Tuesday night study at at my place, I don't want you to get into the idea that there's a demon behind every rock. There's not. Not everything that happens in the world is demonic influence, good or bad. I also don't want you to minimize the power that the demonic has, because they do. These unclean spirits also had the ability to identify Jesus as the Son of God. They are the first to identify Jesus in that way. After his 
temptation in the wilderness. Now, if you, if you remember how it went, Jesus came down to Jerusalem. He was baptized in the Jordan River outside of Jerusalem. And after he came up out of the water, God pronounced who he was. This is my son in whom I'm well pleased, right? But then after that point, nobody knew who Jesus was until we get here. It's when we get here that the demons identify who Jesus is. Now, if you stick your finger here in Matthew's Gospel and flip over to Mark chapter 5, starting in chapter 3, or in verse 3 rather, We talk about the man with an unclean spirit. He lived among the tombs, and no one could bind him anymore, not even with a chain. For he had often been bound with shackles and chains, but he wrenched the chains apart and broke the shackles in pieces. No one had the strength to subdue him. Night and day among the tombs and out on the mountains, he was always crying out and bruising himself with stones. This is the life of a man who's been given over to demon possession. They had bound him with chains and chains and chains and shackles and he broke free and he roamed the mountains and he wailed and he howled in torment. He cut himself and he bruised himself with rocks. This is somebody who is in bad shape. He was miserable. Mark says later on here in uh, verse 6, when he saw Jesus from afar, he didn't run up and recognize Jesus. He saw Jesus and recognized him immediately. He ran and fell down before him and crying out with a loud voice, he said, what have you to do with me, Jesus, son of the most high God? Matthew says, <laughs> let me flip my, yeah. what have you to do with us, O Son of God? Have you come here to torment us before the time? It's important for us to, to, to step back from the text for just a minute and recognize there are two different words in the Greek that get translated as the word time in English. One of those words is easy for us to wrap our head around. That's the word chronos, right? What, what's another name for a watch or a clock? Chronograph, okay, right? Ordinary timepiece. When, when we talk about things, how things happen, when we talk about a timeline, things happen chrono, chronologically, Okay, so chronos, time. We're talking about uh, time on a clock. The other word is the word kairos. And I know my kids, uh, at least the older three, who went to uh, the Fuge camp here a few years ago. Huh? Oh, Liam didn't go to that one. Okay, so those two anyways. What does the word kairos mean? It's a special moment. Okay, R.C. R.C. Sproul says that we have two words in English. Uh, we we say something is historic, or we say something is historical. Right? 
Something that is historical is something that has happened in the past. Something that is historic is a monumental moment. Right? So the word that the demon is recorded as using is the word kairos. When he says, have you come to torment us before the time, he's not asking if Jesus is early showing up for an appointment. He's asking if Jesus is coming before a particular historical, historic moment, a particular event. These spirits knew that there was a time coming when they were going to be consigned to torment. They know the end from the beginning. Remember, uh, I believe it's in James where James says, you believe that there's a God, great, good for you. The demons do as well and they tremble. Because the demons know. They know that they don't have a chance of winning. So these demons knew that God has a place and time for the punishment of their rebellion against him. And they were concerned that Jesus had come before the end. See, what they don't know is when the end is. Jesus, leave us alone. We're having a good time. It's not time yet. You know, like when you try to pick a kid up from a friend's house. But it's not time to go home yet. Well, yeah, it is, because I'm your parent and I said so. That's what the demons are doing right here. So, of course, since Jesus was there, that meant that the kingdom had come, at least at that point, in that way. Matthew tells us then that there was a herd of pigs nearby. And the demons begged Jesus to send them into the pigs if he was going to cast them out of the person they'd been tormenting. Now, Mark Mark tells us that, that Jesus asked what the spirit's name was. The answer was legion because there were multiple spirits tormenting. Um, Regardless of the name or names or, or, or how many there were, I have to imagine that the reason that the, the spirits asked Jesus to put them into the herd of pigs was to perhaps prolong their, their time before they were consigned to hell. Of course, that didn't work. Imagine their surprise when the pigs, suddenly possessed by this legion of spirits, spooks and rushes headlong into the water (laughs) well that didn't work by our 21st century sensibilities this event jesus casting the, the 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 unclean spirits into the herd of pigs almost seems like jesus is lacking in compassion now i know there are a few of us in here who are 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 animal lovers okay there are certain animals that i love more than others okay i love uh cows and and deer and rabbits and and grouse and pheasants and um doves and squirrels and ducks because they all taste good okay i love pigs because they taste good um catfish are, are pretty good and you know um but I also, I am fond of pets. I've, I've had pets almost my entire life. And, 
and the companionship and, and unconditional affection that is shown by a dog is is unbeatable. It's it, it's actually a, a, a kind of grace. It's it's a gift that God has given to us. Somebody who accepts us no matter how horrible we are. And then for those that are sadistic, there are cats. You know, because you want to have a pet that ignores everything about you, then, then you have a cat, right? But Jesus, all of it, it what have the pigs done to deserve this? They're, they're pigs. They're just standing out on the hillside rooting around. And, and I don't think Jesus did this because he was a Jew and they're pigs and they're unclean animals. And I don't think Jesus did this because, well, I'm the Lord of creation. I can do what I want. I rather think that Jesus had a different perspective than we have. And in this case, the perspective is because his mind wasn't clouded, wasn't darkened by sin like ours is. That darkening, that insanity that we suffer from is the insanity that causes us to to think that somehow, some way, this particular species of owl or this particular species of frog or fish or snail or snake or whatever is somehow more valuable than a person. I've loved my pets, but if it came down to being able to provide for my pets or being able to provide for my kids, the kids win. I lived on a farm. We cared for our animals, sometimes a little bit too much, most of the time. <laughs> but if it came down to, and eventually in the small family farm business it has come down to, you either continue taking care of the animals or you work and take care of your family, the animals got to go. That's not the way of the world today. The same people who are out there protesting save the whales are most often out there protesting free access to abortion. There's a problem. Jesus had before him at least one person, possibly two, probably two, definitely two according to Matthew, who were possessed and he knew that the redemption of those possessed men was infinitely more valuable than any herd of pigs. So the pigs crash down into the sea. The herdsmen tear off into the sea. I mean, Matthew almost gives us the idea here in verse 33. The herdsmen fled, and going into the city they told everything. Well, yeah, their livelihood just went out to sea. And pigs don't do that. Mark has a detail that Matthew doesn't. Mark tells us there were approximately 2,000 pigs in the herd. That's a lot of bacon. That's a lot of livelihood. So I'm not surprised that the herdsmen ran off into the city and told everybody, but please note... They weren't concerned about what happened to the pigs. 
The herdsmen fled, going into the city. They told everything, especially what had happened to the demon-possessed men. Not what had happened to the pigs. And what was the reaction? The residents of the city came out to see Jesus and to thank Him for releasing those two men from their bondage to the demons. No. They came out and kindly asked Jesus to relocate. Can you go someplace else? And I really don't think it was because He just decimated their herd of pigs. I think it's more likely that it's because, just like us, you have sinners who are suddenly confronted with the holiness of God, with the power and authority of God. And in our sinful, natural state, we don't want that. You remember what the disciples did after Jesus calmed the storm? Matthew tells us, The men marveled, saying, What sort of man is this, that even the winds and the sea obey him? If you read it in Mark and you read it in Luke, they cowered in the back of the boat. They tried to get as far from Jesus as they could on the boat. That was probably about as long as it is for me to that bench. If they could have gotten further, they would have. Why, when we read Scripture over and over and over again, and and you hear these, (laughs) I, I giggle when I hear these people say, oh, I see angels all over the place. I doubt it. Because if you were confronted with an angel, you would be on your face eating dirt. How do I know that? Because I have the Bible. What happens when an angel shows up? The first words out of their mouth are, don't be afraid. Why? Because our response is to be afraid. Right? I was just listening again to a message on Gideon. Gideon was already afraid. Gideon was was engaged in threshing out the grain, which is the process of, of shaking the grain loose from the kernels so the chaff would blow away. And you normally do this out in an open field somewhere. You take that winnowing fork and you pick up the grain and you chuck it up in the air and the kernels fall down because they're heavy and the chaff gets blown away by the wind. But where was Gideon doing this? He was in a wine press. He was in a big barrel. You don't get a lot of crosswind in a barrel. Why was he in a barrel? Because he was afraid. And then this angel shows up and says, Hail, mighty man of valor. I'd imagine at that point he had to go change his tunic. He started looking around. Who are you talking to? Don't be afraid because God is with you. When we're confronted with the holy, our response is terror because we're not holy. Isaiah puts it best in chapter 6 when he sees the vision of God on his throne and his response is, woe is me, I am undone. I am a man of unclean lips, and I come from a people of unclean lips. I am toast. This is going to be the last thing I ever get to see. And then God, in His grace, purifies him and uses him to bring his message. 
these people wanted to be as far from Jesus as they could. And that is the difference between us and our sin nature and one who's been redeemed. Now, there are times when we choose to let our sin nature take over. And when that's the case, we respond the same way. You've met those people who've, who've been raised up in church, who've made a profession of faith, and then have decided they want to go off and, and wander their own way for a little while, whether they are saved, aren't saved, have been saved. That's not my concern. How do they respond when they're presented with the gospel? Generally, it's not with, gee, I'm really glad you said that to me. Normally, it's with venom and spite. Get away from me with that. I don't want to hear it. When we're confronted with the holiness of who Christ is, the one who's been redeemed will want to draw closer to the one who's redeemed him. Natural man wants nothing at all to do with that holiness because it only serves to show us our unholiness. I I think I've told this story before, but I'm going to close with it because it's pertinent. It was Dr. Sproul. He was out at his country club playing golf. He likes to play golf. And uh, I don't know if he's any good at it or not. I'm not. And uh, while he was in the clubhouse, there was a uh, professional golfer, and uh, I think he was former President Ford at that point, and um, Billy Graham, and I forget who the fourth person was in in their foursome playing golf. And he'd run into them in the clubhouse as they were getting ready to go out and tee off in the first first hole. And he was a couple of couple of groups behind them, so he didn't cross their path again until after they had finished. When he got back to the clubhouse, the professional golfer was on the driving range, and he was just absolutely hammering those golf balls like every ounce of frustration he had ever experienced in his life, he was taking out on those golf balls. So when, when Dr. Sproul got up to him and he asked him, so, so what was it like playing around a golf with Billy Graham and President Ford? And this professional golfer let loose with a string of profanity directed at Billy Graham. I don't need that preacher shoving his religion down my throat every turn and blah, 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 blah. And Dr. Sproul was taken aback because Billy Graham is not that kind of person. He's very mild and soft-spoken. He speaks the truth, but he speaks it in love. And he, he doesn't beat you over the head. So after the man calmed down and hit about four more golf balls, Dr. Sproul asked him, did he really... Did, did he really get aggressive in, in preaching out there on the course? 
And the pro set his club down and he said, no, honestly, he didn't say a word. He didn't say a word. So what was it that caused this man to react that way? It was the presence of Christ in a believer. Because the way our lives look ought to be different. Now I mentioned I've played golf. I can understand what it's like to get frustrated when you hit the golf ball and it does not go where it was intended. The very first time I ever played, I heard more bloop than I ever want to hear again in my life. That's the sound of a golf ball going into the water. No, they sink. In fact, out of the four of us that were playing, it was just about every time somebody hit the ball. Clack, bloop. Clack, bloop. And then clack, bark, bark, as you knock the birds out of the trees. It's just not good. But I can picture in my mind's eye, I can picture Billy Graham out there teeing off and watching that ball go, not like this, but like that. As he puts his club in his bag and he walks over to retrieve it. Well, it's a game. It's not one of the important things in life. God's in control. I'm not going to let a bad tee shot steal my joy. See, which reaction should we have where, when we encounter the holy? What reaction should we have when we encounter the presence of Christ in someone? And what reaction do we have? That's what I want you to think on as we leave this morning, as we... As we stand and we sing our last song and we pray and we get ready to go out the door, how do we respond to the presence of Christ when we run into it? Do we cower at the end of the boat and ask Jesus to leave? Or do we instead seek to go out to lunch with him like Zacchaeus did?